I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined once again by Sheldon Gilbert from the National Constitution Center. Thanks for stopping by. Glad to be here. Good to be back. So we're going to talk about recent Supreme Court arguments, Trump versus Roberts, and I also recently sat down with Erin Murphy of Kirkland & Ellis to talk about her career. So first, let's hit a few of the Supreme Court's headlines. First up, uh, the Dusky Gopher Frog case is headed back to the Fifth Circuit. Uh, th- this is the case looking at whether the federal government can designate private property as critical habitat for an endangered species when the property is not even habitat. The property at issue would require major modifications in order for the dusky gopher frog to survive there. And pretty much uh, the only thing the Supreme Court decided in its unanimous opinion by Chief Justice Roberts was that the Secretary of Interior's decision not to exclude this property from designation is, in fact, subject to judicial review. It's sending the case back to the Fifth Circuit to decide what habitat entails. So we will keep an eye on the dusky gopher frog. Uh, And as Josh Blackman pointed out on Twitter, Chief Justice Roberts might be projecting onto the dusky gopher frog. He wrote, uh, it is noted for covering its eyes with its front legs when it feels threatened, peeking out periodically until danger passes. And is (laughs) Roberts feeling threatened these days? What do you think, Sheldon? Well, you know, I I think this uh, Josh is reacting to uh, a recent um, uh, somewhat surprising statement by Chief Justice John Roberts uh, in response to a statement by President Trump that a particular decision against the administration uh, was the product of a, of a quote, Obama judge. Um, so apparently the Associated Press reached out to the court for comment, and uh, somewhat unusually, uh, the chief provided a comment. And, and I just want to read his quote completely. He, wrote, he writes, uh, we do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges. What we have is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to do equal right to those appearing before them. Um, and then he followed up on it a little bit later uh, with you know, some Thanksgiving remarks saying that we should be thankful for an independent judiciary. Uh, so a rather pointed and direct response to the president's uh, comments about Obama judges and the, the kind of the reactions to uh, Chief Justice Roberts have been, you know, all over the map with some folks uh, praising him for sticking up for an independent judiciary. Some folks actually like Josh Blackman saying, you know, he's just opening himself up to more uh, fights with President Trump. And indeed, <laughs> yeah. uh, President Trump almost immediately followed up with a series of uh, of tweets in response to Chief Justice Roberts. Um, but it was uh, it was it was a busy few days for the chief. I'm I'm guessing Chief Justice Roberts is not on Twitter, and he's probably thankful for that. <laughs> In you know, other, I think, oh, I'm sorry. Go as ahead. As someone who is on Twitter, I I have many days where I wish I were not. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, in other SCOTUS news, Coach K is back. Justice Kavanaugh is back to coaching his girls' CYO basketball team. He was spotted over the Thanksgiving weekend at a tournament in Hyattsville, Maryland. So I'm very glad uh, to hear that Coach K is doing one of the things that he loves best. Uh, But sadly for his team, who were the defending champs, they lost in the finals. So let's move on and talk about a couple of the recent Supreme Court oral arguments. So first up, uh, the court heard Carpenter versus Murphy earlier this week. This is a case where... A capital defendant in Oklahoma is challenging his conviction in state court, arguing that half of Oklahoma is actually an Indian reservation, and the state does not have jurisdiction to prosecute him. So the defendant is a member of the Creek Nation, and he mutilated and murdered his girlfriend's ex-boyfriend on the side of a highway in Henrietta, Oklahoma. 
So Oklahoma has a unique history when it comes to Indian tribes, and the defendant here argues that Congress never explicitly terminated the Creek uh, Nation's reservation before the creation of the state of Oklahoma. Oklahoma is represented by the queen of SCOTUS advocacy, Lisa Blatt, and she argues that Congress dismantled all of the tribes and stripped the tribal governments of any meaningful authority by the time of statehood in 1907. So at the argument earlier this week, it seemed like most of the justices were pretty skeptical of recognizing a large part of Oklahoma as an Indian tribe, particularly in light of more than 100 years of history here. Putting aside the criminal law concerns, Justice Breyer wanted to know what happens with the 1.8 million people living in this area who built their lives around all sorts of municipal regulations. He specifically pointed to dog-related law, which I thought was an interesting one to bring up. Uh, Justices Alito and and Kavanaugh were both troubled by the fact that we have more than 100 years of history supporting the the fact that this area is not a reservation. And calling once again upon upon dogs, apparently that was the theme for the argument, Alito called this the dog that didn't bark principle of the law. Uh, Justice Kagan and Lisa Blatt went back and forth uh, in several rounds over uh, a series of federal laws leading up to statehood, what they say, and then a series of Supreme Court cases dealing with dissolving Indian territory and what they mean. At one point, Blatt said that Kagan was, quote, fundamentally and factually wrong about her reading of the history. Uh, Justice Kagan did not seem to like uh, to like that very much. Uh, but Blatt argued that through a series of laws, Congress stripped every bit of, a th- of uh, sovereignty from the tribes so that by the time of statehood, there was essentially nothing left. Uh, and Congre- Congress clearly did not carve out an area as a reservation uh, for the Creek Nation. When the other side was up and they were pressed for any kind of authority that the tribes retained post-statehood, the best that the lawyer could come up with was uh, that the tribes um, maintained the ability to hire a translator. Uh, That didn't seem to convince many of the justices. Uh, in, in the rebuttal, Lisa, uh, Lisa Blatt pointed out that a ruling against Oklahoma would affect more than 2,000 state prisoners in Oklahoma who self-identify as Native American. And that is, in fact, under-inclusive because the state would also lack jurisdiction over crimes where the victim was Native American. So at a minimum, we're talking about potentially hundreds of murderers, rapists, and child abusers whose state court convictions would need to be conv- uh, vacated. And the federal government may not be able to retry all of them. Uh, Justice Gorsuch was recused in the case. And so I think it it seems like Oklahoma is likely to win, um, but it may take the justices a while to hammer out exactly how they get to that result. Sheldon, do you want to talk about the Tims case? You bet. Uh, Tims versus Indiana is a case litigated by my uh, former uh, colleagues at the Institute for Justice. And the question is whether or not a state can impose any fine, no matter how large or outrageous, uh, in connection with a, with a civil or criminal matter? Or does the U.S. Constitution, by way of the 14th Amendment, bar states and local governments from imposing excessive fines? And to put it another way, in a more legalistic way, um, is the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause incorporated against the states by way of the 14th Amendment? Uh, so that's the, the legal question presented in the case. Uh, the case involves uh, the... Uh, a, a Land Rover, which the the uh, state of Indiana uh, forfeited from a gentleman named Tyson Timms after he was uh, arrested and convicted for um, uh, for distributing about uh, two hundred dollars worth of of meth, and so he lost a, a a Land Rover worth you know somewhere on the order of forty thousand dollars. And so the question is: is taking his Land Rover for 
uh, you know, its connection to the, the drug crime that he committed an excessive fine. Um, and whether or not it's an excessive fine, does the federal constitution have anything to say about that? Uh, Wesley uh, Hotzitz at the Institute for Justice got up to argue first. It was his first uh, Supreme Court argument uh, ever. And, and uh, you know, if it's, this is going to be your first argument, I think he came away uh, liking how things went. <laughs> the justices uh, were uh, relatively friendly to uh, to the petitioner on the, the first question, whether or not the excessive fines clause is incorporated against the states, and mostly wrangled with, um, with the petitioner on the, the the question of the scope of the excessive fines clause right and what exactly would trigger those types of protections. For example, uh, does the excessive fines clause only apply, only apply to uh, fines related to in personam against the person proceedings, or does the excessive fines clause also apply to in rem or proceedings against property, as in the case of, of Mr. Timms's Land Rover, and that's a, that was a tough question that uh, the petitioner had to grapple with, and and I think pivoted back again and again to the 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 same answer, which is that's a really important question. But the question that this court needs to decide is that threshold question: Has the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause been applied to the states by way of the Fourteenth Amendment? After uh, the petitioner sits down, the state of Indiana's representative, Tom Fisher, gets up, the Solicitor General of, of Indiana. And does uh, an excellent job with a very uh, tough uh, legal argument. In fact, the first question out of the gate for the Solicitor General of Indiana cannot have been particularly uh, um, optimistic for for Mr. Fisher. Uh, The question was more or less, um, Justice Gorsuch said, you know, before we go any further, can't we just, um, you know, clear the air and, and clarify that we all agree that the excessive fines clause applies to the states, right? <laughs> and, you know, if, if a Supreme Court justice starts out your argument with, don't, can't we just all agree that you're going to lose? That's probably not a very good way to start your <laughs> argument. Nonetheless, yeah. uh, Mr. Fisher did an excellent job uh, responding to the questions. Uh, and, but but I, I, my sense is that the, the justices on uh, the right and the left were more or less in pretty strong agreement that the Eighth uh, Amendment does apply. Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause does apply to the states, and uh, and were more focused on the, the the tougher question of what the scope of that right is and what exactly triggers it. Um, there were a couple of moments that were particularly interesting um, in, in the argument. Uh, Justice Gorsuch once again uh, said. You know, why are we even talking about incorporation at all? This whole exercise began in the 1940s. and It actually started a little bit before that. Um, but why are we even going uh, over these questions again and again on kind of a clause-by-clause clause approach? Isn't it pretty clear by this point that the 14th Amendment made the Bill of Rights apply to the uh, – all of the Bill of Rights apply to the state? So he's adopting kind of a Justice Black wholesale incorporation approach. Um, uh uh, Justice Alito had uh, some uh, interesting questions for uh, the petitioner uh, on the scope of the right. He said, well, you know, what exactly does excessive mean? So, for example, in this case, uh, uh, Tim's was driving a Land Rover, but would it make a difference if he was driving a 15-year-old Kia? Or would it make a difference if he's driving a $250,000 Bugatti, right? How do we determine what kind of a fine is excessive? Uh, Chief Justice Roberts 
seemed like even though he was sympathetic to the argument that the excessive fines clause applies to the states, um, he was a little bit less sympathetic to the argument that the excessive fines clause applies to in-rem proceedings against property. Chief Justice Roberts said, isn't the Land Rover an instrumentality of the crime? And this gets to the core of the basis of civil forfeiture, the idea that uh, if a piece of property is involved in a crime, then the government has you know, um, an easier path forward to, to taking that property. And so Chief Justice Roberts uh, said that it's pretty, quote, pretty well established that the car could be forfeited. Um, so I think those were kind of some of the highlights that I would take away from the case. But all told, I think that uh, Mr. Timms is likely to uh, set a, a new and important precedent that the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause applies to the states. Incorporation cases don't come along very frequently. Uh, and so this is a case that will be in the history books. Yeah. What do you think will be the next incorporation case? Well, when do you think the Third Amendment's going to come up? Well, <laughs> I, you know, the Third Amendment is, is my favorite orphaned amendment. Um, and uh, without going into any detail here, I do have a friend that I think has a legitimate Third Amendment case, uh, but, uh, but wants to settle it amicably with the government. But I, I keep trying to tell him, no, you got to fight this thing. This is on the Third Amendment is on every constitutional litigator's bucket list. Uh, please, please, please drag this out. Of course, you know the the part of me that uh, is is much more responsible and says that things ought to be resolved amicably, amicably whenever possible outside of the court system. Agrees with his impulse, um, but I got to say that the constitutional nerd in me would love. To, uh, to litigate that Third Amendment case. <laughs> I'm going to have to get more details from you uh, once, oh, we, yeah. once we wrap up <laughs> this episode. <laughs> uh, well, moving on, uh, I recently spoke with Aaron Murphy. Aaron Murphy is a partner at Kirkland & Ellis. Aaron, welcome to SCOTUS 101. Thank you. So you studied journalism at Northwestern. Did you ever plan on working as a journalist, or did you always want to become a lawyer? Uh, you know, I thought briefly about it kind of while I was at school, but I would say I kind of went to school knowing that there was a good chance I was going to go to law school. Mm -hmm. um, I liked journalism. I, I was a print journalism focus, and so I kind of went because I always liked writing. Mm -hmm. um, I found in school that I actually liked the writing a lot more than the reporting. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, there's there's other ways I could do the parts of this that I really like uh, without, you know, doing the parts of it that I don't love quite as much. And <laughs> kind of by the end of, by the middle of college, I'd started to shift toward thinking about going to law school. So then you went to Georgetown for law school. And after that, you clerked for Judge Diane Sykes on the Seventh Circuit. So tell me about Judge Sykes. Judge Sykes is wonderful. I mean, she's she's just a, I mean, she's a brilliant judge, as everybody knows. But she's also just an amazing person. Um, she's one of these kind, genuine people who is just an actual pleasure to work for. Uh, so it was it was a great experience. I mean, I learned so much from her as a judge, and and so much from her just as as a professional and and as as somebody who's doing doing law very successfully and in a way that is really admirable and uh, with, with, with kind of so much grace and integrity. So now you were in one of her early classes of, of clerks on the Seventh Circuit. So tell me about the community of clerks. Yeah, it's really, you know, expanded quite a bit since, uh, since I clerked for her. I, we were, I think, basically her second full class on the Seventh Circuit at the time. And and now she's coming up on uh, 15 years on the mm -hmm. bench. So we've we've got clerks all over. You know, she's got a lot of clerks who stay back in the Milwaukee and Chicago area, but a lot of clerks here in D.C. too. 
um, and and folks doing a, a lot of different work. So it's it's really been it's it's been fun for me as sort of one of the you know older generation of clerks <laughs> to to watch the the family grow and and get to know folks and and get chances to meet everybody whenever we do all happen to be in the same place at the same time. So you later clerked for Chief Justice John Roberts. What was he like as a boss? He was a great boss. I mean, he he really was. You know, I mean, I, I was very fortunate to work for uh, two judges who were just wonderful people to work for. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That that you know, you actually just had had fun working with. They were not remotely difficult people. You know, he was he was fun and treated us wonderfully and and made the job uh, just even more rewarding than you would expect a job like that to be. So what's your favorite memory of your time in his chambers? You know, for me, I, I think it's it's hard to say that there's one kind of particular favorite moment. Mm-hmm. I, I, what I loved about the clerkship and when I think back about it, it, it was all the little things. Uh, you know, it's 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 very easy to get a little wrapped up in what you're doing there and think that, you know, clerks think they're running the world and influencing <laughs> everything and, and that they're running the show and that their justices are, you know, care very much about what they do and think and all that. And they do to, to some extent, but, 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 you know, they, they, they could run this institution with, with, you know, with, with us or without us, they know what they're doing. And so uh, to <laughs> me, a, a lot of the fun of the, the clerkship was those little moments, things where, you know, there was a nice day and we got to eat lunch with the chief outside in the courtyards or mm-hmm. getting to, to, you know, to meet the other justices, friendships that you created with the clerks. I mean, I tell people all the time when they're going into clerk, like, don't forget this is actually, you know, can can be a fun year and and you can enjoy it and it doesn't have to be that you're going to you know single-handedly shape the law for generations to come through your role <laughs> as a law clerk. <laughs> so I've heard about Leroy the Elk that resides in Justice Gorsuch's chambers and Justice Alito has a pair of flamingos. Does the Chief Justice have anything whimsical like that in his chambers? <laughs> I think probably the most uh, whimsical, memorable thing in the Chief's chambers is is the John Quincy Adams couch, uh, which is, you know, he, he loves to invite people into his chambers and sit you down on his couch and then tell you, this is the couch that John Quincy Adams died on. Uh, so uh, that, 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 that's the, probably the first, first memory I have of going into chambers because it's part of the interview process. <laughs> that's great. So what, what does the couch look like? Do you remember? I, you know, it's just kind of an old leather type couch. You know, nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing that's quite so memorable until he shares that piece of information with you. <laughs> that's great. So let's turn to another legal giant, Paul Clement, who you've worked with for several years now. First, when you were a Bristow Fellow in the Solicitor General's office, and then at three different law firms. So tell me about working with Paul. You know, I mean, you'll, you'll definitely get a theme here. Um, I, I like working with people that are fun people and easy people to work with and, and people that make the job enjoyable. And, and that's a big part of why, you know, I've worked with Paul for so many years. I mean, yeah. we have amazing work. He gets amazing work, and I get these opportunities to be part of unbelievable cases. Uh, and But but it's also, you know, I, I, I don't think I would keep working with someone this long if I didn't <laughs> just genuinely enjoy working with him. We have a great working relationship after all these years. And he's just, you know, I, 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 I'm sure I only think this because I'm a Midwesterner, but all three of the people I've spent most of my career working with are Midwesterners. And I think there's just something about, you know, that, that it, it leads to a certain type of uh, humility and a wonderful kind of rapport <laughs> and, and easy people to work with. So. Yeah. So where are you from? I grew up in Chicago. Chicago. Okay. Suburbs. Good, good Midwestern girl. I'm from Louisville, <laughs> Kentucky, so we're kind of Midwest. Yeah, I think the, that the South doesn't want us. The Midwest doesn't, you know, doesn't know. <laughs> um, okay, but back to Paul. So, what are some of the most important things that you've learned from working with him? Uh, you know, and I, I, I think he has a very kind of just 
common sense approach to law and and a very kind of it, it's okay to to be simple about things mm-hmm. and let's make it easy to understand let's make this the kind of brief that 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 any intelligent person could pick up and get what this case is about and mm-hmm. and have themes that 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 are attractive to people without having to kind of be seven levels deep in the law to understand. I mean, of course, it's important yeah. to to have all of that there too. Mm-hmm. But that ability to step back and just think, you know, wh- why should somebody think we're right? Uh, I think that's just critical to to every step of advocacy. So, if I have the timeline correct, you left King and Spaulding uh, to join Paul at a small boutique firm right after he very publicly quit the uh, King and Spaulding. So what was it like leaving the stability of a white shoe firm <laughs> to go to a small and relatively unknown one? Yeah, it was, you know, it was it was an extraordinary experience in my life. It was not something I had anticipated or, <laughs> or planned for. It just sort of happened uh, overnight. Um, but it it was a great experience. And looking back, I think it's probably one that shaped my career tremendously. I mean, it was not just a move to small, but, you know, I mean, I, I went from being kind of the relatively junior person on the totem pole to being mm-hmm. sort of like almost the only person on the totem pole. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it was uh, it, it was a lot of work, that, that especially that kind of first year. We, we had a ton going on. It was the year of NFIB and, and mm-hmm. a ton of other cases that we had up at the court. And so it was, you know, we, we, we had... Far fewer people to do a lot more work, um, but uh, but it was great fun. It was really exhilarating, and and we just uh, over the years expanded and 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 built a great practice, and and I really enjoyed it. And so now you're back at a big firm. Um, so did it take some time to adjust to you know to being back with so many other staff and lawyers than you yeah. know the the small crew at at Bancroft? I mean, yes and no. You know, it, the the work is the same, uh, and and the way we've done the work is is always been the same. And we brought mm-hmm. our entire firm moved to Kirkland, so uh, so that that obviously you know allows for some great stability when you just yeah. kind of pick up and take your whole firm and your whole practice. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, I, I, I believe Kirkland literally has a hundred times as many attorneys as as Bancroft did when when we moved over. So uh, so obviously there's some some differences. I mean, you know, for, for us at Bancroft, a conflicts check was like emailing your colleagues and saying, hey, can we do this? You know, and, <laughs> and a committee meeting was like, hey, let's all have lunch and chat in the conference room. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, everything was uh, the, those types of things were were a little easier to deal with than when you have uh, quite quite such a big operation. So I, yeah, it, it's taken a little time to to learn the the ins and outs of of a much bigger firm, but uh, but it's been a great adjustment. So moving on to your Supreme Court arguments, you've argued four cases, including some big ones: Gil v. Whitford last term, uh, McCutcheon versus FEC, which was a 2014 campaign finance case. So which was the most memorable argument? I think probably for me the most memorable will always be McCutcheon because that was the first case that I did, um, and it was you know it was it was sort of a whirlwind. Uh, I, I had been involved in the case for a while, but it was relatively late in the process when I learned that I would get to argue it. You know mm-hmm. that that certainly wasn't something I had come in thinking I'd get to do. I was pretty junior in my career at the time, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it it just was sort of one of these things where you have to be a little bit like pinch yourself that, that it's <laughs> happening. Um, so it was it was an amazing opportunity. It was great. I, I remember it was, you know, one of these beautiful fall days. My family was all there. I mean, everything about it was just uh, a, a really memorable experience. It, it doesn't hurt when you get to 
win your first case to either. <laughs> so it makes it a more positive experience. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so do you have any pre-argument rituals or traditions? You know, I've heard some people will eat like four bananas to fuel up or you know, they have a lucky charm or something like that. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't quite call it, you know, a tradition or so much. But uh, as, as as some probably learned uh, when I wrote a piece about this last year, I, I do have um, I, I like to listen to to inspirational music during my uh, d- time when I'm kind of prepping for argument. And and probably my my, my principal go to song is, is Eminem's Lose Yourself. So uh, <laughs> so that one will pop up a few times on, on my playlist uh, in, in kind of the the couple of, of final days when I'm really trying to rev myself up before argument. <laughs> That's great. Um, I'll have to find that article and, <laughs> and send it around to our listeners on our Twitter account. Okay, so last question, something we ask all of the guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? I think I'd really like to talk to Justice Jackson. Um, I, I've always found him really interesting because he had all these different roles. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, I particularly think... The experience with the Nuremberg trials is sort of a fascinating thing, and having the yeah. idea of somebody who would kind of wore every hat um, and and uh, you know, learning about that. I mean, one of the things I always loved about talking with the Chief Justice was was getting to learn about you know the differences between his experience as an advocate and his mm-hmm. experience as, as a Chief Justice. And so I, I I'm always particularly kind of intrigued by people who who kind of saw the law from all those different angles. Yeah, that'd be a great conversation to have. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. All right. We'll wrap up with a game, Judge or Just Made Up, where I'm going to list five names. And Sheldon, you can tell me if they're real judges or just made up. Now, Elizabeth, I'm going to do this game, but I want to spring something on you. And I got permission (laughs) from John Malcolm to do it. Oh, boy. Um, So I thought it'd be fun. You always give me these Supreme Trivia pop quizzes. I want to give you a, a pop quiz on Heritage Foundation trivia. So we're going to keep it to three questions, but are you game? Yeah, absolutely. I hope right. I don't embarrass all right, myself. <laughs> uh, all right. Number one, what 1,000-page widely read Heritage Foundation tome on policy and philosophy caused Democrat Patrick Moynihan to say, quote, of a sudden the GOP has become a party of ideas? The mandate for leadership. Ah, very good. Mandate for leadership, (laughs) which I understand that uh, President Reagan shared with his very first cabinet. Yes. At their first meeting, he handed out copies to to all the cabinet members. And do you keep that on your nightstand? (laughs) I don't have it on my nightstand, uh, but I'm sure we have plenty of copies of the various (laughs) iterations of it from over the years uh, in in our building. That's fantastic. All right. So you're one for one. Okay. Um, Number two, uh, when did Heritage launch launch its website, heritage.org? Oh gosh, mm. you know well, I let me don't. Know if you need a hint, I don't. A hint would be great. This is the same year that IBM unveiled unveiled its proto uh, artificial intelligence uh, um, computer supercomputer Deep Blue. Okay, well, I had, everybody knows when Deep Blue was launched, right? I have no idea. <laughs> okay, um, your next your next hint is it's the same year that the Alta Vista search engine launched. Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm showing my lack of knowledge about computers. All right. Let's well, say... I'm going to give this one to you. It's, it's 1995. So Heritage.org is, 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 um, is around since 1995, so coming up on uh, 23 years. And 1995 also is the same year that Amazon.com launched. So an easy, way, easy rule of thumb for you to remember is that Heritage.org and Amazon.com <laughs> are the same age. They're young 20 Perfect. All right, last one. 
uh, I want to play Two Truths and a Lie about Ed Meath. Oh, boy, the here we go. of the Heritage Center you work for. So I'm going to give you uh, three statements. Two of these are true, and one of these is, is, is false uh, about Ed Meath. And you have to tell me which of these statements is false. All right, I'm going to do A, B, and C. Okay. A, having worked with Reagan for decades, Ed Meath frequently refilled President Reagan's jelly bean jar. Okay. Or is it B, as a whippersnapper, Ed Meese worked as a day laborer in an ironworks. Or is it C, when he first went to Yale, Ed Meese wanted to be a liberal. So your options are A, oh, Ed C, Meese in the jelly bean jar, <laughs> B, Ed Meese as a day laborer, or C, Ed Meese as a liberal. Which Ed Meese as a liberal. <laughs> is, that, is that your final answer? It is. That's that's actually true. It, he, when he first went to Yale, he did, in fact, want to be a liberal. No. And he said that he wanted to be a liberal right up until one event where, quote, the four parties announced their principles, the labor, liberal, bull moose, and conservative parties. And he says, the only party whose principles I felt really comfortable with was the conservative party because he said he was drawn to, quote, the conservative's belief in the worth of the individual in liberty and freedom and the free market system. So, so, in fact, uh, Ed Meese did want to be a liberal when he first went to Yale. Well, but he changed his mind. But then he, he, didn't, he didn't yet know what conservatism meant. And once he learned, then he knew that's really what he was. <laughs> he also didn't know what the Bull Moose Party meant, but uh, <laughs> he learned there, too. Um, All right. No, the lie was that he refilled Reagan's jelly bean jar. In fact, Ed Meese, in a number of interviews in the 1980s, said that he doesn't even like jelly beans. He was uh, he, he departed from Reagan on at least one important issue, uh, the value of jelly beans, even though they were very close uh, advisors and friends on so many other important issues. Well, so I you can... got you, you got uh, um, uh, I'm going to call it one out, out of one three out of three. With your, oh. your caveat there about that he didn't really know what a liberal was, so you know, <laughs> his, his, saying he wanted to be a liberal didn't count. I'm surprised to hear that um, Mr. Meese doesn't like jelly beans because he he has a pretty uh, he has a sweet tooth. He loves cookies, so. <laughs> Uh, oh, that's good. We, yeah. we have well, that in and, common. And so there's my pop quiz for you. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I thought it was a fun way to talk uh, about some interesting pieces of heritage trivia. Well, thank you. Okay, now you're in the hot seat. All right. All right, you ready for Judge or Just Made Up? Yep, let's go. Okay, first one. Sherman Minton. Sherman Minton? Is he a judge or just made up? <laughs> um, I'm going to say Judge. That is correct. He was a U.S. senator from Indiana and later associate justice on the Supreme Court. He was appointed by Harry Truman. And while he was in the Senate, he was apparently quite the fan of FDR's failed court packing plan. Oh, that's good trivia. Next question or next uh, next individual. George Thomas Washington. George Thomas Washington. Um, we've got a number of, uh, of Washington judges, but I'm going to say that one's made up. No, he was a real judge, a descendant of President Washington's brother, Samuel. This Washington was a D.C. Circuit judge appointed by Harry Truman. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, he, he was, uh, is he then descended from Bushrod Washington as well? Uh, if he was George Washington's brother? Yes. I well, don't have to look that one up. That's great. Yeah, I mean, they would be—they're really—they're in the same family tree. Um, I don't know who Bushrod's father was. I'll have to look that up. Anyway, okay. Next one, Chamberlain Holler. 
Chamberlain Holler, I want this to be a real judge. Um, uh, because every advocate who appears before him could say that, that she was hollered at. <laughs> uh, well, not a real judge, uh, but one from a movie. This is the name of the judge from the classic movie, My Cousin Vinny. And- oh, oh, of course. <laughs> yes, yes. That, what a great judge. Yeah. Um, and, and the actor uh, uh, in the judge in My Cousin Vinny is the actor in that great um, uh, 1950s, 60s sitcom about uh, um, Frankenstein. Yes, he was Herman Munster on The Munsters. I think that's what that's he right. is perhaps best uh, best known for. Okay, next. Elbert Parr Tuttle. Elbert Carr Tuttle? Parr with a, with a P. Oh, Parr Tuttle. Mm-hmm. Uh, judge. That is correct. Uh, an appeals court judge appointed by Dwight Eisenhower. He was one of the Fifth Circuit Four, a group of judges who advanced civil rights in the law. Uh, along with uh, one of the other Fifth Circuit Four was Judge Minor Wisdom, another judge with a great name. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fifth, that is an excellent name. <laughs> fifth and final. Spotswood William Robin, Robinson III. That's a judge. <laughs> That's correct. He succeeded George T. Washington on the D.C. Circuit. And before joining the bench, he was a noted civil rights attorney and one of the lawyers who argued Brown versus Board of Education at the Supreme Court. Yes, that's that's where I, I recognized him from, and how can you forget that name? Yeah, that is quite a and he was the third, the third of such name. <laughs> well, I think you did a, a great job, certainly better than I did with uh, Heritage Foundation trivia. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me, Sheldon. Thank you so much. It's always great to be on the show. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery, sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. Did you know you can now listen to all of our events through SoundCloud or just by visiting our events page on heritage.org? You now have access to hundreds of events and compelling discussions on policy issues from your car, on the train, or the comfort of your own home. Visit heritage.org events for more information or search for the Heritage Foundation on SoundCloud.